Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Daryl, thank you for coming on. Thanks for doing this today. And can, may I start just with the issue of politics and how politics mm. may need to change, given where we are on this 20th of February? Well, I think, you know, we're seeing uh, the realities of how divided Canada is politically right now, playing itself out in so many ways. Uh, you know, obviously, what, what's been going on in Ottawa lately, but it's, it's more than that. Um, what we're seeing is a generational divide. Uh, we're seeing a regional divide in terms of our politics. Um, and we're seeing a national government, for example, that won a recent uh, federal election just a few months ago that lost the popular vote. And in Western Canada, with the exception of British Columbia, is barely represented. So, um, you know, we've got a lot of divisions in this country. And by the way, Canada's been like this in, in, in many different ways uh, before. Uh, so it's not really anything new. It just seems that this is a, a particularly intense time. And some of the bigger changes we're going through, Roy, particularly demographically, are fairly unique to the period that we find ourselves in. Can you expand on that just a little bit, Daryl? Well, you know, uh, since uh, um, 1960, I mean, Canada, or actually since the end of the Second World War, most of Canada's population growth has been uh, as a result of us just growing naturally through the, through the, the process of, of procreating. And certainly immigration has been a big part of that. But what's happened over the space of particularly the last 15 years or so is that the Canadian population has basically stopped having kids at the level that they used to. And almost all of our growth has been as a result of immigration. And, and immigration uh, not only changes the complexity of, of you know, uh, even our identity here in, in this country, but where immigrants decide to settle changes the geographic space in which we're living. And, and even um, uh, um, with immigration having that effect, it's still not offsetting the fact that the Canadian population is aging very rapidly. So one of the biggest things that we're going to be dealing with is essentially the transition of the baby boom from this mortal coil over the space of the next 20 years, and it's going to affect everything. Okay, so um, so politically things are going to have to change. Canadians are asking for uh, a different way of doing things. Uh, right now there's a lot of discomfort with the way we're moving forward. Government, um, the good and not so government, yeah, good rather. So what is the that governments and political parties should stay particularly aware of themselves? Well, I think the first thing is just to acknowledge the fact that we're changing. I mean, every time I have this conversation with people and tell them, you know, uh, we've stopped having kids, uh, we're not going to become overpopulated. Almost all of our population growth is as a result of immigration. It's amazingly concentrated in the suburbs, which is going to have a major impact on what our country is going to look like in so many ways. It's like a revelation. Like I'm saying it to the first time for somebody who hasn't really heard it before, because we have this image of what our how our country is evolving that seems to be stuck in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, in which we're you know a country that's governed from uh, Quebec and Ontario, uh, that uh, you know we're this bilingual nation with an, you know this Aboriginal uh, aspect to to whatever we're trying to uh, uh, portray ourselves as, as in terms of how this country was founded, whatever our founding mythology is, it's less and less in touch of what the Canadian population is. In fact, French-speaking people, uh, the French language is now the third of the categories they track, which are English, other, and French, is now the third language in the country, or the third category in the country. So we're changing in really dramatic ways that few people acknowledge. And our institutions aren't really necessarily recognizing that either. 
Okay, so part one of next is who we really are. Daryl, is the final question of our first segment with you today. Who are we? Well, we're uh, obviously a Western uh, Western, mostly Western uh, country with you know democratic uh, and in, uh, institutions that are really generated mostly from uh, from our, our heritage with the United Kingdom. So we've got that going, uh, you know, continuing on into the future. But in terms of the the actual look of the population changing dramatically, we have one of the highest uh, rates of foreign-born populations in the world that exist in Canada. The, the federal government is about to embark on bringing in the most immigrants that have ever come to Canada this year. That's going to have a big impact. We're becoming increasingly a suburban nation, particularly car commuting communities. And that is shaping everything about our economy, but in particular about our politics, because all of the political decisions that matter now, all, all the real power in our politics is coming from the Canadian suburbs. So can we just go through some of the most salient points to you and where we live in the chapters in part two of the book, The Great White Myth, How the East Was Lost, The Rural Crisis, uh, McFuture, Why Suburbia Will Beat Out Downtown Every Time, and The Big Smoke Screen, Why the Urban-Suburban Divide Will Continue to Grow. What do we need to know? Well, I think the first thing, Roy, is to appreciate how much the country has changed over the space of the last 30 years. Um, and the really one of the really big changes is the degree to which the Canadian population is becoming concentrated in the suburbs of the city of Toronto in particular, but increasingly in Western Canada. Uh, so what we've seen is Canada moving away from being a country that's been dominated by the Atlantic Ocean to becoming a, a country that's really starting to be dominated by the Pacific Ocean. And with the way we used to regard Western Canada in this country was almost like the, they, they call them in the United States the flyover states. You know, sort of interesting, nice place to visit, but they really don't matter in terms of our economic future or our political future. That's changed dramatically. So now when you put together the suburbs of, of the, the big city of Toronto, but other suburbs uh, through the country, and combine it with Western Canada, you really see the direction that the country's moving in. So metamorphosis taking place, whether we like it or not, it's changing, the country's moving forward. So why is Western Canada the future? I mean, you've talked about the Pacific region, but specifically, when I think of Western Canada, I think Manitoba and West. Yeah, and, and when we talk about Western Canada, I mean, it, it does break really into, you know, each of the individual provinces, they each have their own personalities, and particularly British Columbia, which actually looks less like Western Canada and actually looks more like, like Ontario, looks more like Toronto these days, um, particularly places like Vancouver. But what the big change is, is the push of population. I mean, uh, the 2021 census just came out, and we still see that there's population growth in Western Canada. Yes, we've seen that there's been an uptick in population growth in Nova Scotia, for example, in Atlantic Canada, but when they're starting from a smaller base than we're seeing in uh, you know, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta combined. In particular, we're seeing a lot of growth in British Columbia. So the population is being, the center of the country is being pulled west in terms of the, the base of the population. Okay. Now, small-town Canada. Everybody waxes nostalgic about small-town Canada. A friend of mine said, I love small-town Canada, I just don't want to live there. Um, and that was a fairly recent statement. So the death of small-town Canada, what does it mean for all of us? And when we look at the next chapter in Where We Live, in your book next, the next chapter is why suburbia will beat out downtown every time. So small-town Canada is dying, but suburbia beats out downtown. Yeah, so small-town Canada is uh, is uh, not growing as fast. The small-town and rural 
Canada is not growing as fast as uh, as urban Canada, and particularly suburban Canada. So we, our population continues to grow at, at uh, one of the fastest growing rates in the G20 and, and leads the G7 in terms of population growth. But most of that growth is coming out of car commuting communities. In fact, almost 90% of our growth over the space of the last 20 years has been in those places. But what we've seen is as these part, this part of the country expands, uh, while there's a little bit of growth, at least reported in this most recent census, in small-town rural uh, Canada, it's at a much slower rate of growth. And the population that's there tends to be much older than we're seeing, for example, in the suburbs. So what is, over time, is, over time, yeah. harder and harder to maintain. Okay, so what big picture, as we look at this country moving forward, and again, our focus today is 20 years from now, or what happens in the next 20 years, where we get to 2042, how will this country have changed? Uh, big picture, where does where we live fit into this, um, this, this, this development, this triptych that Canada is taking? Where, where does where we live fit in? Well, the people who are living in suburban car commuting uh, communities tend to be uh, people who are disproportionately newer Canadians. Most of our population growth is coming from uh, um, uh, immigration. And so that's who's, who's, who's dominating in these communities, but increasingly in Western Canada, too. Um, and as a result, the agenda that's set by the new Canadian population, suburban population, and Western Canadian population is going to become a more dominant part of our, our, our discourse in this country. So the old Laurentian elite idea that, you know, it's all about winning in Quebec or winning in, you know, Montreal, Ottawa, and Toronto, and that's really the, the political future of the country, not so much anymore. Uh, and uh, what we're seeing is these suburban sens- sensibilities that are created by new Canadian middle-class uh, uh, suburbanites um, are really going to become more important in terms of our national economy, but also in terms of our national politics. Boy, it's all intertwined, isn't it? It is just so intertwined. Every part of our lives, where we live, how we live, what we follow, what we do, all intertwined. It's like a, uh, a spider's nest. I, I don't well, mean that in a negative way. Yeah, but it all, you're absolutely right, Roy. I mean, the, the thing that we seem to get really, uh, you know, captivated by is the opinions of the moment. Now, I'm a public, a public opinion pollster, so I'm obviously very interested in that. But it all starts with people. And if you change the nature of people, you change the nature of everything. And yeah. that's what's happening in Canada right now. Canada, the nature of the population is changing dramatically. Where we live, who we are, our age categories, our identities, everything is changing really dramatically. But we keep pretending like we're stuck back in the 1980s, and we need to move off of that. Daryl, part three and part four of next, who will be? Uh, why diversity is not our strength, everything is political, one solitude, why English Canada will continue to dominate, and then the battle for immigrants, why our biggest challenge is our biggest strength, and then gender wars, why women will power the market. So when, when we get to who will be, what are you telling us? Well, the nature of the Canadian population, what it's going to look like over the space of the next, uh, and I, I wrote the book basically over the midterm. So, uh, you know, by 2030, 2040, what, what the country is going to look like. And the amount of demographic change that we're going through is, is considerable. So every one of those elements are, are things that, uh, that you just named, are things that people aren't anticipating but are absolutely going to happen. And can you walk us through a few of them, uh, why English Canada will continue uh, to dominate? Also, the question when people hear why diversity is not our strength, they'll say, well, explain, please. And then the battle for immigrants and the gender wars. Well, let's start with the diversity not being our strength. Basically, what I'm saying in that is that 
uh, diversity is actually in most countries a challenge. I mean, if everybody's the same, then it's pretty easy to make things work. But when you're a country as diverse as Canada is, increasingly diverse, it, it, it actually creates a lot of challenges. And if you don't have to go very far other than, for example, the United States to look at what, uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, immigration from across the southern border, how that's affecting the politics in that country. And when you change the complexion and, and the complexity of, of the population, you create opportunities for, for tensions and for differences. And, and our, our great strength in Canada actually is that we've kind of figured out a way to work this. But we can't take it for granted because in so many other countries in, in the world, increasing diversity, increasing complexity means increasing conflict. Okay, so if we can stay on the same page, but move down the page a little bit, metaphorically, the battle for immigrants, why our biggest challenge is our biggest strength. What are you telling us there? Well, that we have been able to first figure out the first part of this, which is to manage to uh, deal with the complexities of diversity. It means that we're an attractive place for immigrants to come to. So when you take a look at, uh, you know, the United States, when you look at Australia, when you look at uh, uh, Western Europe, for example, and the, the difficulty that exists around accepting more immigration in those places, that Canada is able to deal with this is, is important because we have all the same problems as places like Western Europe do. Vastly uh, a declining birth rate, which means we're not getting having enough kids to replace our own population, which means the only way our population continues to grow at a sta- in a stable way is through immigration. So our ability to bring in immigrants is and, and being, being able to accommodate them is something that's a real strength. But as I said before, it's a challenge. It's not, it, it, it's not easily done because most of the countries in the world aren't capable of achieving it. Okay. Women will power the market. Yeah, they certainly will. I mean, back in the 1970s, Roy, there was more men in the Canadian population than there are than there were women. Today, there's more women than there are men, and that gap grows every year. The gap between the number of women in the population increases every year. And and, and the irony is that even though, uh, while we still have a really small birth rate compared to what it used to be, uh, there's always more boys born every year than women or girls. And and the reason for that is, is men are like mayflies. A lot of them are born and they tend to die really fast. And when you particularly get over the age of 50, uh, women really start to dominate the population. If people live to the age of 100, uh, which increasingly is, is more likely, the number of women in the population to men in that category is about 5 to 1. Oh. So the older our population gets, the more female it gets. But when was the last time you saw an older woman in any sort of television commercial or advertisement in which they weren't treating her as an exception, but as the mainstream. And increasingly, the mainstream is going to be older women. Okay. And then the the last is is part four, what's next, the silver tsunami, the authenticity dilemma, plugging in how to connect with consumers in the new Canada and winning the future, 10 key strategies. What's the the overall takeaway from part four? Because I want people to read your book. Well, I just basically broke it down into 10 things that they really have to pay attention to. Uh, the increasing power of women in the marketplace, um, the, the increasing power of suburbs in the marketplace, uh, the, the, the push of the Canadian population to the West, so figuring out how what Western consumers want and what suburban consumers want, um, that if you want to look at what the immigrants are going to look like in the next 20 years, stop looking at places like Asia and start looking at places like Africa because it's the only part of the, the world that has surplus population. But I go through these 10 things because they're going to really – define what the marketplace is going to look like, not just for, you know, for people who are marketing to consumers, but also for politicians 
who are marketing um, their uh, their pitch for Vogue. Yesterday, uh, Scott Moe was with us, the Premier of Saskatchewan. We spent a rather lengthy time with the Premier. I asked him to stay longer than we'd agreed to. He stayed with us for 45 minutes, talked about a lot of things, including the Prime Minister bringing in the Emergencies Act. And uh, I mentioned on the show yesterday that we were going to be doing today what we're doing, and the Premier liked that idea, so I contacted him this morning, and Premier Moe is with us. Premier, thanks very much. Uh, Two days in a row. We appreciate it very much. So um, we're looking now down the road, 20 years, and what people expect and what they think will help this country not only survive but prosper. From the Saskatchewan perspective, what changes would you want to see in Canada by the time we reach 2042? Well, in Saskatchewan, we have a you know, a growth agenda that our government has had uh, you know, efforts in place for some period of time to you know, grow uh, the investment that's coming into predominantly our natural resource industry, but also uh, growing other industries here in Saskatchewan as well. And um, what that provides us, that investment provides us with, is is really jobs and careers uh, for you know people that live here for the next generation, our our kids that are are growing up in our communities, and and we've been successful, quite successful over the last fifteen years at at attracting this investment, and we have. Uh, had to, you know, actively search uh, around the world uh, for skilled people to to actually move here and make Saskatchewan uh, their home and become Canadians. And and we've done a, you know, I think a a, a fairly good job of that over the course of the last 15 years. Uh, we've seen our our immigration rates uh, for much of that time uh, be at the top of of where they have been since really the formation of of the province. And so. When I, uh, in fact, we formalized this with a, a plan for growth out to 2020. I, I took part in, in forming that plan as an MLA. Uh, we consulted as MLAs with people in our respective areas of the province that we represented. And so it really became a, a plan that we had put together uh, to attract investment, create jobs, um, and, and ultimately grow our, our communities, grow our province, and then allow our government to take the proceeds of that growth and reinvest uh, into you know services uh, for Saskatchewan people, hospitals, schools, and we've built all of those uh, for a number of years now. And so it's, it's a plan that was made by the people. Uh, it's a plan that I think has proved to be successful as we went through the first, uh, what we called a decade of growth out to the year 2020. I was elected uh, as premier in 2018 and that was one of the very first agenda items that we got to work on was to reformulate that plan, looking out to the year 2030 and set some targets for, uh, you know, what we see the growth uh, of the potash industry looking like, what we see the growth of our agriculture industry looking like in the way of value-added uh, ingredient production as opposed to just ag- agri-food production, what we see the growth of the, the innovation sector, the technology sector here in Saskatchewan, what is that going to look like? And, you know, how is our energy sector, our oil sector, going to not only continue to grow, and yes, uh, we do have growth targets for our oil sector in Saskatchewan, uh, but continue to become uh, more sustainable as, uh, you know, as we transition how we uh, provide energy to Saskatchewan people, Canadian people, and, and the world. And so, you know, there's the opportunity that we see in front of us as a, as a province, and the opportunity that we see in front of us as Saskatchewan people, and We've had tremendous investment just in the last uh, number of months. In fact, over $13 billion in private investment in, in various industries, potash, uh, energy, uh, the forestry industry, the agriculture industry, or the agri-food industry. And so we're, we're quite 
you know, proud of what we think we will be able to accomplish as we find our way through COVID in Saskatchewan. And I think the same can be said for Canada. And uh, as I said yesterday, we all need to uh, just, you know, make every effort to look ahead as opposed to looking back and, uh, you know, start to come together again as Canadians so that we can achieve the, the opportunity that I firmly believe lies before us. So let's look at that for just a moment, and I, I'm, I'm glad to hear you talk about the objectives that Saskatchewan has set, your government has set, you're meeting the objectives, but then we also run into a situation where the provinces, no matter how hard they decide to move forward, no matter how diligently they prepare, you run into a federal government that can be, well, can denigrate what you're trying to do and, and put uh, roadblocks in your way. That certainly has happened with the current government as far as the western prairie provinces are concerned, Saskatchewan and Alberta. So uh, the structural or the the structure of political power has to change in Canada, doesn't it? Must provinces have more autonomy, such as Quebec? I mean, you were on the air with me a couple of months ago, and you said that you believe Saskatchewan should have the same relationship with the federal government that Quebec does. Must provinces have more autonomy to make the decisions that really impact the people of the province and then ultimately and more broadly benefit the people of the country? Without a doubt. And, and Saskatchewan will be coming over the next number of months, uh, um, pushing for uh, not only to have uh, an equal amount of autonomy as the province of Quebec does, but to go beyond that in some cases as well. And uh, that, that ultimately is what we need to look at uh, across this nation. Uh, listen, we, we have a federal government that first, I would say, in, in light of this weekend's events, needs to lay down the, the divisive policies and, and divisive co- comments uh, right from, from the leader himself. Uh, <clears throat> if we have any chance of bringing uh, Canadians back together, you can't be calling them names. You can't be calling them racist and misogynist, things of, of that nature. So lay all of that aside and, and let's look ahead and let's look at, you know, what we can do in the way of our comments and in the way of our, our policies on, on really bringing uh, this nation back together. When it comes to everything that I had just uh, mentioned to you before is, is what we're looking forward to in Saskatchewan. The same can be said, I think, as you extend across Canada and and many, many other uh, industries. What we need our federal government to do is to uh, be just that, a federal government that, you know, is, if you think back to, let's let's just go back one previous federal government. We had a government that was, had ministers uh, all over the world signing uh, trade agreements, uh, participating in advancing our trade relationships with countries all around the world, including, and most importantly, uh, the United States of America, which is all of our largest trading partner, um, and setting really setting targets with respect to you know where we can make inroads uh, with the, the the products that we have in Canada. We're an export based nation. That's the source of our wealth in across this across this great nation. Um, and and as we look forward, you know, part of of working with those our customers, those countries around the world, uh, we do need to look at how our products are are produced and. You know, so there's emissions targets, for example, that are set by the federal government, rightfully so, and we don't agree with that. Um, but they need to allow the provinces and the industry uh, to figure out how they're going to achieve those targets without federal uh, federal involvement. Uh, they, they should also consult with the provinces and the industries prior to setting those targets. It might be helpful in, in actually achieving those, which has not happened uh, to this point. But at the end of the day, we need leadership from the federal government to, one, uh, bring, bring Canadians back together in what has been a very challenging two years. Two, um, ensure that we are united so that we can achieve everything that we can uh, as Canadians. And ultimately, you know, at the end of the day, when I, when I look around the world and, and see some of the, 
you know, the international conflicts and challenges uh, that we have, you know, I, I look uh, into that, e- that Eastern Europe area, for example, and we see, you know, what's happening between Russia, we see uh, in Ukraine, and, and then ultimately some involvement by, by the European Union. And when you look at those three regions of the world, you know, I would just ask, uh, the, you know, the question around, you know, energy security, food security, uh, communication security, economic security, which of those regions, Russia, the European Union, or Ukraine, uh, has energy security, has economic security, and which one of those areas is, uh, you know, quite hesitant uh, versus, uh, you know, maybe being the aggressor in in uh, in the whole conversation that's happening there. And, you know, in North America, we have to keep an eye on our energy security, our food security, communication security, and ultimately our economic security so that we can remain an independent nation. And that that's what should be forefront with our federal government. With me now is a man I have a tremendous amount of respect for. We always go to our next guest when uh, we need some real good common sense ideas and solutions to issues facing us. Ujjal Dosange is an immigrant from India. He's the former Premier of British Columbia, former Federal Minister of Health. Uh, Ujjal, thank you very much for coming on the program. Maybe as immigrants, we have a different perspective, a, a different, a more broad perspective of what this country is about. Fair statement or not? I, I, th- I think it's a fair statement. Um, I lived in England for three and a half years um, before I came to Canada. I was born and raised in India. Um, and I found Canada to be um, a much fairer, much more tolerant society than Britain was then. I came in 1968, um, and Pierre Trudeau had just become the prime minister. Um, and... You know, I believe Canada has become a fairer society since. Uh, and, you know, I, what happened over the last two or three weeks reminds me how it's important to uh, uh, return to a civilized way of demonstrating, talking to each other, sort of the old Canada where you didn't, um, you know, shoot at each other, you didn't go do blockades, um, uh, and, and the governments were more responsive. Uh, people were equally expressive, but less angry. Um, I, I, I find it hard to understand the anger uh, that uh, has been expressed over the last two or three weeks in the demonstrations. Uh, I had never seen such anger in Canada ever since I've been here. And I think we need to revert our old self. I mean, you don't go back as a country, you progress. But in terms of the civility of the discourse, we should return to that civility. How responsible are governments and political parties that are not in government for the creating the kind of divisiveness, the kind of anger that you and I and all of us have seen, particularly over the last several weeks, what we've talked about on this program, and uh, is the consensus view is that political parties have done a great deal to facilitate the anger and create the divisive points of view. I, you know, I, I agree with it to a certain extent, and that is because I believe that when, you know, in old times you ran campaigns, um, you, um, the, the, the opportunity for political parties was in polarizing the population based on certain ideas. Um, and, and, you know, that's what politics is all about saying, you know, I stand for this, you come to my camp and support me. 
but it seems to me that over the last several years, uh, the political parties and the political leadership all around have been have become somewhat more aggressive um, and less respectful of each other and less respectful of the differences of opinion that are reflected in the population as well. And I think that so so the, I think the the uh, blame lies um, at the doorstep of the political leadership all around as well as uh, the leaders of the demonstrations who uh, have also taken um, the rhetoric to a different level, level unseen in Canada. Is this country, in your view, and you were a federal minister and premier of British Columbia, is this country divisible? Is there more than just a noisy but very small minority arguing for Canada's breakup? What's your sense? Yes. I, I think that large majority of Canadians like the country they have. Uh, time and time again, they have stood up for the unity of the country and urged the country to remain together. So I think the voices uh, that are out there saying, you know, um, whether in Alberta or in, in Quebec, saying we want to split because Canada is going downhill, it's not the Canada that we were part of, you know, that kind of rhetoric. I think that that's a very small minority. But when you add the anger and those who feel disenfranchised from society, when you add their anger to those voices, I think, you know, it multiplies and uh, and one is frightened somewhat. And then one also looks at south of the border and wonder whether some of us are sort of copycat rebels, um, you know, Trumpists. I hope not, but one wonders. What would you change about this country? And we're looking 20 years down the road. I said, uh, said earlier, this is, the children of today will be the young adults 20 years from now. What would you change in Canada to facilitate um, a better dialogue, a more harmonious country than we're living with at the present time? You know, I, I have never believed um, in anything other than uh, first-past-the-post electoral system. I believe that's the best system of government. But in the last few weeks, I've been wondering whether other systems like the proportional representation might not be a good system so that representatives of all of these people can at least in, in some ways can get to parliament um, and, and have their say uh, in, the, in the highest debating body in the country. Do you think the prime minister, the current prime minister, is perhaps the most divisive prime minister in your and my lifetime? I, I don't know whether he is, but I think he's certainly made some mistakes. I think that, that you know, starting with the last election campaign, when, uh, when the issue of um, anti-vaxxers and vaxxers uh, was sort of, it became the polarizing issue, uh, I think that that was wrong. And I think that that, it, that has carried on into how um, he initially dealt with the demonstration demonstrators. I think that, that, that the, leaders, the leaders of the country have to speak respectfully, even to those uh, that they might think are despicable, like people who you know, might carry swastikas or carry other things. You still have to speak to them or about them respectfully because you set the standard of inclusion and saying, 
you are wrong, but I respect your views. I disagree with you. I think we need to begin to bring that civility back, both on the street and in Parliament. There also has to be consistency. 2020, there were protests that uh, closed down the rail lines, closed down bridges, closed down ports. The prime minister was touring the world looking for votes for a United Nations Security Council seat for two years, wouldn't come back to Canada. His minister met with uh, individuals who closed down rail lines. There was no talk of uh, the Emergencies Act being uh, brought into play. There's just this sense of um, inconsistency when it comes to government. And, and Ujjal, it's not really about, in my view, you tell me what you think, please, but it's not really along party lines any longer. There's just a mistrust of the, of the process. And this brings us back, I guess, to what you just said. The civility discourse has to be reestablished. It has to be reestablished. Absolutely. It has, there has to be consistency. I think whether you talk about the rail blockade or Ferry Creek or other places, I think governments have gone uh, to a large extent to show more leniency. Um, and perhaps the issues were different. But, you know, people, people on the streets uh, in their trucks see that and and uh, sometimes they get angry about the difference in treatment and that's i think that's fair but the consistency is very important in how we deal with protests i think we we need to create this basic understanding that that dissent is uh, uh, appreciated we appreciate dissent we accept dissent but there there is an extent to which you can show show dissent uh, but you you can't um, do blockades and you can't prevent Parliament from working. You can't go occupy Ottawa and say the Prime Minister of the country should resign. That's not how we change governments. One more question. The violent attack on the Coastal GasLink pipeline worksite where workers were terrorized, company employees were terrorized in northern British Columbia on Thursday. What would you do if you were still Premier of the province of Ontario? How would you react? Ontario, well, well, you know, I, I think that the, the, the public safety minister has reacted appropriately, has condemned it in very strong language. Mm -hmm. And obviously the RCMP and other police forces will be doing their job. And uh, I'm reminded of, um, you know, how uh, um, BC Hydro facilities were sabotaged several years ago, in the 90s or 80s, I believe, by some radicals uh, with with explosions. Um, and uh, and I'm reminded of other violent incidents in the country and the province. And there is no, you can't show any um, hesitancy in dealing with violent crime. Uh, and violence is not acceptable in the country. And that's a fundamental principle that demonstrators and governments and all Canadians need to actually create consensus on that violence and blockade, blo blockades are not acceptable form of protest block it for one day or two days yes not for three weeks it wrecks the country it wrecks our civility it wrecks people's lives it's it's so important to remain peaceful and not become obstructionist Professor Ken Coates is back with us, University of Saskatchewan. He's the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation. He's a Monk Senior Fellow in Aboriginal and Northern Issues at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. And Professor Coates is with us to talk about what we've seen over the past few weeks of protest in Canada 
And as we spoke about uh, Professor Coates last weekend when we reviewed uh, an op-ed that you wrote December the 4th for the Globe and Mail where you predicted what is happening now would in fact happen because governments have not been, uh, shall we say, proactive when it's come to dealing with protests evenly. Here we are dealing with the situation we're dealing with today. How are you today? Sad, to be honest. So ho- horrible entering your program in that particular way, but but I, I agree with your sentiments, and I've, I've I've never been more concerned about the future of our country. Certainly not since the rise of the separatist movement in Quebec. So I, it's a sad day. When you say you're concerned about the future of our country, and I was there as a I was a kid, and I didn't really understand what was going on, except they were blowing up mailboxes close to the high school I was going to. I walked by one that blew up a half an hour later and took off uh, the arms of Sergeant Major Walter Lejar, who was a bomb disposal expert in the Canadian military. And I never forget his name, never forget that, that, that scene. When you say you are, you've never been more concerned, other than you know the beginning of the Quebec movement, how worried are you specifically about the continuum of Canada as we know it? Um, sort of moderately for the first time, really, since the, the rise of separatism in Quebec. Um, I think what we've seen, and, and I think the Prime Minister is personally responsible for a big portion of this, is a sort of a sucking of the soul and vitality out of the country. Um, he's told us that we're a nasty country, a mean country, a wrong country, a fundamentally flawed country, and he's told us that so many times um, with, with a good intent. I mean, I don't doubt his heart, I just doubt his methods. Um, that in fact, we've got a situation where Canadians don't care very much about their country. Um, people calling in to talk to you care about it passionately. Ironically, a lot of the people who, who showed up in Ottawa care about it passionately. But as a nation as a whole, we've sort of just fallen into a rut. And we can't, quite frankly, people can't define what it is they like about the country anymore. And, and we actually need a political class in this country who actually believe in Canada, who want to challenge it to be better, um, who are going to help create a better and more dynamic future for the nation as a whole, um, and who actually have the sort of the personal gumption to get to know Canadians as, as groups. Um, not just to sort of deal with them and, uh, you know, some of the comments coming out of Ottawa about the truckers were just mean-spirited and nasty and totally unnecessary, but also about anti-vaxxers and people that dare to protest against them. Um, and add that to a government that basically doesn't believe in sort of enforcing the rule of law, and you really got a problem. You know, we really have a problem in this country, and I, I, I hope we can get it right again, but our, our politicians of all political stripes have let us down. Uh, over the last month, couple of months, and in fact, over the last, through the pandemic. So so I'm not very, very confident about things going well. We're not going to fall apart in a massive, horrible, you know, guns blazing civil war. But sometimes, you know, a divorce that happens because people just stop loving each other is even more painful to watch. Yeah. You know, the prime minister uses words like misogynist and racist. It was the Prime Minister of Canada who appeared several times in blackface. He should remember that, and we should remind him. But when you look at what happened in Ottawa yesterday and what's happening today, I agree with you. I was on the air when much of it was going on yesterday. But I went and watched it. I PVR'd a lot of it, and I watched it last night. It's, it is sad. It makes you sad. You say, and this is the country where I came to as a 13-year-old, and I had the opportunity and the right uh, to grow in Canada, become a Canadian citizen. I joined the Canadian military. I had I had a chance to grow and make a life for myself. I owe this country everything. 
I hate to see what what's happening, and the and the uh, the separation of people. It's 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 really saddening, can it? It really just tears at your heart. It, it does, you know, and, and you'll know the other side of this, Roy, and, and, and we've talked many times over the years that there are so many Canadians who love this country like crazy, who see its values and its and its traditions and its customs. But, you know, we're, we're basically have, have allowed to downgrade almost everything we truly believed in, things we were great at in years past, like hockey and curling. We now struggle to be great at in the, in the, in the present and everybody else has caught up with us. Um, I always find it so funny when you ask university students to say, what is it that defines Canada? They'll say, oh, yeah, we have a national health care system. And you sort of point out to them that in, in terms of international standards, our, our system's kind of mediocre at best. It isn't great. It's let us down, not because of the doctors and the nurses and the hospital administrators, but because of the general planning for the overall system has let us down terribly through the pandemic. You know, and, and so, so what else is there? Where, where's, the, where's the thing to rally around? Where's the thing where the leaders t- call us together to sort of do something good for the nation as a whole? And I always think, I, I feel badly saying this, but the pandemic was an opportunity in one sense to do that, to ask Canadians to, to sort of, you know, pull together to a common destiny. Um, instead, we got a government saying, don't worry, we're going to cover all your costs by, by mortgaging the, the next two or three generations. Um, and it sort of took the, the urgency away from many individuals to sort of look seriously at what was going on and, and to make the kind of sacrifices that would have would have actually allowed us to come out of the pandemic stronger instead of weaker. And so here we are. We've 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 driven everybody a bit crazy. We're all stir crazy. We've all had enough. We all have have pandemic fatigue. And, and at the end of that, you've got an emergency measures legislation against against Canadians that seems massively over the top. And totally unnecessary, and and a very tepid response. Uh, I cannot, quite frankly, understand the NDP's response to the to the legislation. This is completely counter to their traditions of J.S. Woodsworth and Tommy Douglas standing up for freedom and liberty in every way they possibly could. And now they just go along with the government on every file, and it's really depressing. So you know, I'm looking for for sparks of, of brilliance and ideas. Um, there are many, many hundreds of thousands of passionate committed Canadians who want to see a country do better. Uh, but right now, there's no linking tissue. There's, there's no sort of you know gathering force. The political parties don't do that anymore. The national media doesn't do it anymore. There's, there's nothing that really holds us together in a strong and passionate way. And that, that, that's hard to imagine how you come and get stronger in a rapidly changing chaotic time that we face globally in, in over the next 20 to 30 years. Yeah. I spoke with the uh, critic or the shadow minister for the NDP yesterday for public safety, Mr. McGregor, Alistair McGregor. And he kept insisting that the NDP is going to keep an eye, a very close eye on uh, on what's happening. And if they don't like what they see, I'm paraphrasing, then they will step in and they will no longer support the Emergencies Act being uh, brought in by by Mr. Trudeau. That sounds like a really weak response. They they never should have taken the step they took in the first place. That's essentially admitting that. But when they say that, they're they're telling us that they're not committed to the decision they've made. So it's a political decision. But can a final question? Let me come back to your students. If if I were to walk into one of your classes, virtual or otherwise, and I were to ask all your students, are you hopeful for the future of Canada? And what are you hopeful about? What would they say? Um, they would actually be surprisingly positive. Uh, because they are a very entitled generation and used to things coming around to their benefit and they can't really imagine a world without it. So generally they expect things will work out okay. 
Um, ask my students five years after they graduate from university what they that answer how they answer that same question, and they're far more concerned. Housing prices through the roof, uh, difficulty finding the kind of career jobs they hoped and aspired to get. Um, the the groups who are still in the class are kind of optimistic and bubbly and enthusiastic, and you got to love them for that. Uh, the ones who who've left are facing the reality of life. And, and they're actually finding a situation that I find all too distressing of many of them sort of, well, I guess I have to leave the country. Um, that's a really hard thing to contemplate. You don't leave the country just because things have gotten a little bit hard. You stay and you fight for it. I don't see much fight. I, I don't, I don't, I see people who are kind of like the internet. They go around the barriers and, and, and don't sit there and, and, and try to tear them down. And, and I think we need a nation of people who really want to fight for Canada and want to believe in it very strongly. I wish we could see it more strongly. I wish we could see more passion, more enthusiasm. I just don't see it. Yeah. Stop handing out participation trophies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's go to my uh, good friend, our good friend, Eric Cam, the professor of macroeconomics at Ryerson University. Professor Cam comes on this program regularly to share information with us on what economic matters really mean to you and me in the marketplace on a daily basis. What we do know is, let me just run by this by you for a second. January is inflation past 5%, not seen in 31 years. The consumer price index rose fastest since the CPI introduced was introduced 23 years ago. Shelter costs are up faster, fastest pace in 32 years. Groceries up 6.5% January of this year over January of last year. Professor Cam, I know you want to say something about what Mr. Trudeau said, so go ahead. Well, what I don't understand, Roy, and thanks for the forum, is that you have a prime minister that in previous speeches, I've heard him use terms like cultural sensitivity, and I've never seen somebody more culturally insensitive. I don't understand. It's, it's like his radar goes off when he says, I'm speaking to a Jewish MP, maybe I should bring up the most horrifying thought to a Jewish person. And I, I, it's like you say, you shake your head, I shake my head too. I mean, everybody has the little voice in their head where they know there are some things you just never utter out loud. But you know what? This guy seems to hear the voice and says, I think I've got carte blanche to say them. And I feel bad for Ms. Lanceman and I feel bad for the Jewish community me included, although I, I don't represent all Jewish people, but I think I can speak on behalf of all Jewish people when I can say, Mr. Prime Minister, smarten up. You're in charge of a country with almost 40 million people. You've just got to be better. Do you ever, as a Jewish person, somebody who knows you're Jewish, not that it should matter, but somebody who knows you're Jewish, have you ever run into a situation where someone in a position of significant authority and power and influence has said such a thing to you? You know what? It's happened twice in my life as an adult. And of course, I will redact the names because I don't like lawsuits. But once when I was on the job market, I was a newly minted PhD applying at a university in Ontario. And all of a sudden, the chair of the department looked at me and stopped me in mid-sentence and said, wait a minute, you're a Jew. And I said, I am. And he said, that's funny. I don't see any horns. And oh. I didn't appreciate that. And then once uh, in a professional sense, I was part of a group of people that passed something that wasn't terribly popular to a particular person. And this person wrote a very famous um, email stating that the reason that this was passed was because of the two Jewish people who sat on a committee 
and um, and that's why this happened. So, you know, maybe I should say thank God that in my 54 years on the planet, it's only happened twice. Or maybe I should say, damn it, in 54 years on the planet, it's happened twice. But anti-Semitism is not brand new. Sadly, it's not going anywhere. It just finds new forms of ugliness and new ways to creep into the society. And it's creeping into our society increasingly. It's, it's creeping into our society increasingly. And I know we weren't going to schedule to talk about this, but, you know, now you have all new sectors of people who walk around and say, well, I don't hate Jewish people. I just don't believe there should be a state of Israel and I'm all for throwing it into the Red Sea. And, you know, this is nothing more than veiled anti-Semitism. This is nothing more than a hatred of Jewish people. You can, you know, there's that expression that you can put an old dress and so you can wrap anti-Semitism in all the new fancy language you want, but it's like love. You know it when you see it. You know it when you hear it. And unfortunately, it's alive and well in Canada. I know we think we're better than some places, and in some ways we are. And sadly, as our prime minister likes to remind us, in some ways, Roy, we're not. Yeah. Let's get on to economics. What level of concern do you have about the Canada of today, as far as economic realities are concerned, and where we're headed. We're seeing the stats that come out of Statistics Canada. Some are uh, disputing them, saying they're actually quite conservative with their numbers. What are you seeing? What, what's your level of concern? My level of concern is high, and it's nice that we're talking about the future, because I think we've spent the last two years talking about the pandemic and what it's done to the economy, and that's, of course, what we should be doing. But, you know... Everything passes in the long run and the pandemic will pass. And so we are not as concerned as economists about what is going to level off and what is going to return to pre-pandemic levels. What scares me, Roy, are the things that we know are not going to return to pre-pandemic levels. So when you look at any forecasts of growth over the next 25 to 30 years, and I've looked at many of them going to even 2045 and 2050, they're talking about nothing more than one to one and a half percent growth per year. And that's due to things that are what we call structural. They're not going anywhere. We are going to have a population problem. We have a baby boom cohort that sadly is not going to be with us 25 or 30 years from now. And the only way that we're going to maintain our labor force is through immigration. The good news is, is that there is a lot of immigration and immigrants are highly educated right now. So we've got to try to foster that. But any way you look at it, what the pandemic has done some structural damage to the economy and it's never going to get better. Not in the timeline that you and I are talking about today. Our dollar is not going to get above 80 cents US. In terms of uh, fiscal policy, we are never, with a capital N, going to get out of the deficits we are in today. And are they manageable today? They're manageable today because interest rates are where they are. But when interest rates start to rise, and that's coming, they're going to be much less manageable. And then in terms of my passion, monetary policy, I don't mean to bore the prime minister, he has no use for this. But in terms of monetary policy, you're going to see interest rates rise. I think they're going to settle around 1.75 to 2%. And that's going to calm down spending. It is going to calm down the housing market. But in a sense, it's also going to calm down growth. So what I look at, Roy, is I try to, I try to disentangle what has the pandemic given us that is not going to go away. And those are the factors that I see. 
So for the next 20 to 25 years, we're going to stay in uh, significant, two words, and uh, record debt, essentially, because the debt will incur more debt uh, through interest payments, as I understand it. And uh, and we're not going to be doing much better or any better individually unless we get our backsides into gear and find a way to do things that may be a little bit unconventional. So what can you say to somebody who's a free-thinking, entrepreneurial, free-spirited individual who says, I want to prove this wrong, at least for myself. What do you say to them? Well, first of all, I think I want to tell people to keep the entrepreneurial entrepreneurial spirit alive because it's all we have. But I think that much like many other countries, and I don't like to put this forward, it's time to buy and sell Canadian. We have got to get our act together and we look, have to look no further, Roy, than the energy sector. And we have to remind ourselves that this is an area that we should have a comparative advantage. That is an area that we economically can do better and can do more efficient. And so I take energy just as a, as a micro detail of what the economy has to do. It has to come back. It has to remember what is this economy? We are a staples economy. We are a service economy. And we have to start going back to doing the things that we do well and do them better than other countries so that they will want to buy what we have to sell. But we are so not dependent on other countries going forward. And we need to put the stuff on the market. And we do know that certain countries, I think an increasing number of countries, are returning to fossil fuels because they have no other option and we have scads of that and that energy is going to be needed in the world for a long time to come certainly longer than the 20 to 25 years we're talking about today well that's right and that's why i tend to you know i I i'm hard on the energy sector because i think it's the greatest example in this country of a raw natural resource that we have naturally in abundance that we let it go to hell in a handbasket. And, you know, if we can just turn that around, if we can take energy and fix energy, then I think in a way that it's going to lead the way for the rest of the country to say, all right, we do know how to do this because we had growth for the better part of 30 years. The pandemic threw us off the tracks, Roy, but we can get back on the tracks. We just have to do what Canada does best and do it better than the rest of the world. And when we did that, we were an economic superpower. And we've got to get back to that. Staples, selling, exports, that's what we have to do. And stop buying 750,000 barrels of foreign oil every day. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.